pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray this day that you would uh, help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. Uh, we pray that you would give us all ears to hear your word. Uh, open our hearts and minds. And I pray, Father, that you would... Uh, work in us by the power of your spirit this day, uh, that we might be uh, really thankful for the good gift of food, uh, but we would be even more thankful for Christ. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, I'm someone who really loves food, uh, not so much cooking it. I'm not very good at cooking food, uh, but I really do love eating food. Uh, so if you want to cook some food for me, I'll be happy to eat it. Uh, I love uh, eating food. Uh, and I suspect many of you also love food. You love food. Uh, but the truth is, our relationship with food is often very complicated. Well, what do I mean by that? Our, our relationship with food being complicated. I'll give you some backstory from the Bible. Right In the very start of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, uh, God gives humanity food as a wonderful gift. So I'll read some verses. Genesis 1, verse 29. God says to humanity, he says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. Every tree that has fruit with seed in it, God says, will be yours for food. Likewise, in the second chapter, Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, we read that the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees to grow out of the ground. I notice these trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so God gives humanity all sorts of wonderful food to enjoy. Not just food to sustain us, uh, but food that's beautiful, that's pleasing to the eye. Food to enjoy, to delight in. And in Genesis 2 uh, verse 16, he says to Adam and Eve, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Uh, but in verse 17, he says you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of that tree, you will certainly die. Right, so Genesis 1 and 2, God gives humanity food as a wonderful gift and he gives them freedom to eat from any tree in the garden. But he says, don't eat from this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because I, I want you to trust me, God says. I want you to humbly trust me. Trust that I am God and you are not. Trust that I have the right to define what is good and evil, uh, uh, right and wrong, better than you do. Uh, so that's setting the scene. Uh, but then, of course, in Genesis 3, everything goes wrong. What happens? Adam and Eve use food not as a means of humbly trusting God, right, submitting to his rule, uh, but as a means of proudly rebelling against God declaring that they want to be God. And ever since that moment, our relationship with food has been complicated. Instead of simply enjoying food as a, as a good gift from God, a wonderful gift, uh, we actually turn food into our God. A kind of substitute God. It's what the Bible calls idolatry, sin. So I'll give you some examples. Rather than humbly acknowledging that God is the sovereign ruler, God is in control, uh, we turn to food as our source of control. So when life is hard, it feels out of control, what do we do? We count our calories, we measure our portions, we assess our diet, we may even starve ourselves. 
at least in part because food has become a source of control for us. Or we turn to food as our primary source of pleasure or satisfaction. Uh, Constantly kind of searching for that next great food experience. Uh, You frequent the food and wine festivals. You you seek out the top-notch restaurant. You're always on kind of bean hunter looking for the best coffee in your local area, right? Always you're pursuing satisfaction apart from God in food. Or you try to find a sense of status in food. You throw fancy dinner parties. You seek out recipes that you know will enable you to prove yourself to others. Not like our house, like my daughter's the one who gets toast with nothing on it. We're very humble in our house. No fancy dinner parties, right? But uh, but some of you, you're like, food is status. I've got to impress people with what I cook. Uh, In fact, uh, if this is you, you might be the sort of person who talks all about the ingredients in your food. I like to cook with organic things, ethical things, fair trade things. Even better, I grew all this myself. You know, you've been to that dinner party. Oh, you, oh, you grew it yourself, did you? You know, like, it's very impressive. Right? Food as a source of status. Or food as a source of comfort. Right? This is colloquial, isn't it? We've got a whole thing of comfort food. You have a bad day. You just have to have some comfort food, some chocolate, some chips, some ice cream, a glass of red wine. Now, of course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with being self-controlled with what you eat. A great thing. There's nothing wrong with getting pleasure or comfort from food or even in in seeking to cook food well. Nothing wrong with any of those things. Uh, But we all know that it's so easy for those things to get twisted in our hearts. Uh, So all of a sudden, instead of humbly enjoying food as a good gift from God, food has assumed this massive place in our life. Food has actually become our God. And as Jesus says in John chapter 8, whenever something other than God becomes our God, it leads to a kind of slavery. Remember, Jesus said, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And you might say, that's ridiculous. I'm not not enslaved to food. We're not enslaved to food. But, but, well, I'm no expert by any means. There are people who, who are. But I do wonder why it is that the rates of eating disorders are just so high. Surely it's at least in part, but because when life feels chaotic in all sorts of areas, at least I can control this, my food. I can control what goes into my mouth. And so we find ourselves enslaved to food as a source of control. On the flip side, why are rates of obesity so high? Well, surely it's at least in part because we're enslaved to food as a source of comfort, of pleasure. So that we really just can't say no to that extra bag of chocolate or chips or whatever it is. Or why is it that shows like MasterChef are so popular? Many of you here love it. Surely... It's at least in part because lots of people like the idea of achieving a certain status, right? being declared a master, right? through simply using food. We love our food, but our relationship with food is complicated. So often we're enslaved to food as our God, rather than simply enjoying food as a good gift from God. 
So that's the context for the meal in today's passage. Uh, the Last Supper, which Kelly's uh, wonderfully called, uh, said, is uh, we now call the Lord's Supper. And we see in this passage uh, that this meal is all about the freedom that we can have in knowing Christ. This meal represents freedom, food and freedom. Uh, so first, let's look at the preparations for the meal uh, in verses 7 to 13. That's sentences 7 to 13, right? Uh, in verse 7, uh, Luke tells us that it's the day of unleavened bread, uh, the time, he says, when the Passover lamb has to be sacrificed. And we'll come back to this in a bit, but of course in Jewish culture, uh, this festival of unleavened bread, the, the Passover meal within it, uh, is a massive deal. Well, lots of preparation. Think, think Christmas Day, if that's, a, if that's a big deal for you, right? Uh, so in verse 8, Jesus says to Peter and John, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And they say, where do you want us to do that? Well, that's a fair question, given that earlier in Luke's Gospel, in, in chapter 9, verse 58, Jesus had said, uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus doesn't have a house to host the Passover. His disciples have all left their houses. Uh, so Peter and John say, yeah, fine, let's have the Passover, but where do you expect us to prepare? Uh, so in verses 10 to 13, Jesus says, look, have a look at uh, number 10 there. As you enter the city, that, that's the city of Jerusalem, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Uh, he will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. And they left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. And now that all seems a little bit mundane at first, but, but actually it's quite interesting. First, but because even though Jesus is asking Peter and John to prepare the Passover, uh, isn't it obvious that Jesus has made a whole bunch of plans himself first, right, without even telling his disciples? Right, he's teed up, this man with the jar and the, and the room upstairs. Jesus has teed all that up. Why is that? And why just Peter and John? You know, many hands make light work. There's lots of preparation to do. Why not get all the disciples involved? And why all this cloak and dagger stuff, right, of the, of the man with the water jar? You know, it's like a spy kind of thing going on. Look out for the man behind the newspaper with the dark glasses on and he'll take you upstairs. You know, like why all this secrecy? What's that all about? Why not send Peter and John directly to the house? Uh, incidentally, uh, in, uh, in a Jerusalem that was packed out for the Passover, uh, this man carrying a water jar would have really stood out But because in this culture... Uh, uh, men uh, delegated the hard work of carrying water jars to women, very wise, uh, and they just carried around a small little an uh, uh, kind of water bottle made from animal skin. All right, so uh, this man carrying around a water jar uh, would, have, would have really stood out in the crowd of Jerusalem. But still, why this secrecy? Oh, well, if you've got an actual Bible open, uh, you can look back to the start of chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. Or you flick on your phone. Have a look in verse 1. You'll, you'll see that the Passover is approaching. And in verse 2, you'll see that there's this plot happening. The Jewish leaders are looking for an opportunity to get rid of Jesus, to destroy him. So look in verse 3. Satan gets involved, right? Because Satan is pretty keen on destroying Jesus too. So he enters into the life of Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, and he plays on the greed in Judas's heart, uh, so that in verses 3 to 6, 
Judas agrees to betray Jesus. So we've got in verses 1 to 6, uh, the Jewish leaders, Satan, Judas, they're preparing their plan to destroy Jesus, a plan of destruction. But in verses 7 to 13, Jesus has his own plan, not a plan of destruction, but a plan of salvation. And as a part of that plan, he really wants to share this Passover with his disciples. So he makes it happen, doesn't he? He makes it happen. You see, Jesus, is, he, he might seem like a victim. He might seem like everyone's plotting and he's got no idea what's going on, but Jesus is in control. Not Satan or the Jewish leaders or Judas, but Jesus. So the disciples prepared the Passover. They found the room just as Jesus had said, and they made the preparations. That, that's the preparations for this meal. Now, before we uh, look at the details of the meal and, and their meaning, uh, we've got to look a bit at the, what I've called the tradition of the meal. Uh, this is kind of, within Jewish culture, what did the normal Passover look like? Uh, I think that'll help us to understand how Jesus' death on the cross uh, fulfills this meal and really how it transforms it. So let, let me give you some info. Uh, here's some context. On the first, uh, sorry, on the 10th day of Nisan, right, that's the first month of the Jewish calendar, March or April in our calendar, which is why Easter's always around that time, March or April, right? So on the 10th the, uh, the day of Nisan, the father of every Jewish household would, would go down to the local markets and find a one-year-old unblemished lamb uh, to be uh, sacrificed and eaten at the Passover. And there's Old Testament background for this. Way back in Exodus 12, uh, God said in verses 2 and 3, uh, this month uh, is to be for you the first month of your year, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. So the father would go and he'd select this lamb. And then a couple of days later, on the 13th day of Nisan, uh, the evening before the Passover, the father would light a candle and he'd lead his family on the search through the house for leaven. That's yeast, right? So that, that's a bit odd for us. Why all this kind of obsession with lease, uh, yeast, uh, it's because when God freed Israel from Egypt, they left so quickly that they didn't have time to wait for bread to rise. Right? No yeast, no leaven. Uh, so in Exodus 12, verse 17, God said, Celebrate this festival of unleavened bread. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. So the father led his family on this search for leaven. He declared that there's no leaven in this house. And then on the next day, Nisan 14, the actual Passover happened. And that the guests would have been reclining around a pretty low table, maybe about kind of 45 centimetres high. If you notice, that's what Jesus and his disciples are doing in verse 14. And each of the guests would have had four cups of wine in front of them. There may have been other cups that they used for drinking wine, but these were four cups of ritual wine, if you like, uh, to be drunk at different points in the meal. And before each cup was drunk, the, the host of the meal, in this case Jesus, uh, would say a prayer of thanks to God. Uh, so look, in, in verse 17 there, Luke says, after taking the cup, right, I think this is the first of those four cups, Jesus gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. And then the host would typically recite some verses from Exodus chapter 6. Those verses were about how God freed his people from slavery in Egypt. And then they would drink the first cup. 
then some more food would be served. Uh, all sorts of things, all symbolic. Bitter herbs were served, didn't taste very good, but they symbolised the, the bitterness of being uh, enslaved in Egypt. A whole bunch of stewed fruit was served, uh, which uh, the texture and colour of it was supposed to remind them of making bricks in Egypt. Well, it looked a bit like it. Uh, maybe it tasted like it too, I don't know. Uh, anyway, and, and of course there was this lamb that the father had picked out earlier, reminding them that they were only freed from slavery in Egypt uh, by, because the blood of a lamb was painted across their door frames. You can read about that in Exodus 12 to 14. Uh, so all this food was served, and then the youngest child would ask, what is this meal all about? Because in Exodus 12, verses 26 and 27, God said, and when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. So the youngest in the house would ask, what's this meal all about? Incidentally, one of the reasons why we've started having the children come back for the Lord's Supper. It's a family meal. It gives children an opportunity to ask their parents, ask those around, well, what's this meal all about? This is where it comes from, anyway. And the father would remind all the guests of what the meal was about. Then he'd give thanks for the second cup, but before they drank it, they'd distribute some unleavened bread. The father would give thanks for the bread, which I think is what Jesus does in verse 19. And then the guests would eat the bread in silence normally before drinking the second cup. But notice, look at what Jesus does. Jesus breaks with tradition here. Right? He doesn't let his disciples eat the bread in silence. He speaks those famous words. If you've been a part of the Lord's Supper here at our church, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll come back to that. After the food was finished, it was time for the third cup. I think this is verse 20. Jesus changes things up again, right? He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And that's where this Passover finishes, right? But before they even get to that fourth cup. So as you can see, for Jesus' disciples, Jewish men, this version of the Passover would have been revolutionary. It broke open all sorts of traditions, That's just a bit of context for the meal. Now let's look at the meal itself. Let's consider, what is this meal all about? The question of that youngest in the house. What does it mean? Uh, So first, uh, this meal uh, that uh, we sometimes call the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to enjoy Christ's love. Uh, You can see the three points there. They're all about uh, Christ's love. Uh, Have a look here in verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples... I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. He's eagerly desired it. You hear that? Jesus really, really wanted to share this meal with his disciples. He had desire upon desire. That's the the, the word there. He wanted, he was desperate to share this meal with his disciples. That's why he went to all the trouble of preparing for it secretly, making sure that it happened. He wanted to be with his disciples, to share with them, to teach them, to, to have one last opportunity to assure them of how much he loved them before he suffered. He eagerly desired to share this meal with them. Likewise, when we share in the Lord's Supper, which we'll do next Sunday, Christ is inviting you to enjoy his love. 
enjoy being with him. He's actually prepared that moment uh, at great cost to himself, his broken body, his shed blood, and he eagerly desires to be with you. He wants to have fellowship with you, to share with you, to to remind you of his love. Now, this is not the main point in the passage, but I think some of us need to dwell on on this idea uh, because... Or perhaps you're okay with the idea that that Christ might cleanse you of your sins, uh, that Christ might forgive you of your sins, that that even that Christ might set you free from your sins, uh, but you just cannot believe that Christ would want to have anything to do with you. That he'd want to be with you and have fellowship with you and share life with you. But that is what he wants. He wants you to come to his table so you can enjoy his love so you can be with him and share with him, so he can remind you of how much he loves you. Now, the Lord's Supper isn't just uh, about being in the present, enjoying Christ's love. It's also, of course, about looking back and remembering Christ's love. So in verse 19, Luke says, uh, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, uh, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Jesus says, this bread is my body. Now, let's be clear, right? He's not saying the bread is literally his body. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. That's what they would have us believe. It's not true. Jesus' disciples get it, right? They're there. Uh, Jesus is holding a piece of bread. They understand that Jesus' body is different to the bread. You get there, I'm holding a piece of bread. The, the, The bread is not my body, right? So he's saying that the bread that he's just broken and shared with his disciples uh, is a picture, a symbol of his body, which will soon be broken for his disciples. This bread is my body, Jesus says. And notice that he says uh, that his body is broken for you, for you. Jesus' death is not just a great example of sacrifice, not just an incredible martyr. Jesus dies for us, in our place, for our sins, as a substitute. And notice also that Jesus says we're to do this, do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. And for some of you, that, that might be a bit surprising because you kind of thought the, the Lord's Supper was an optional extra to the Christian life, like a ritual. Some people get excited about it, but not so much for you. Right? But Jesus says, no, do this. Why is he so strong on it? Well, he gives us a hint, doesn't he? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Right? He commands us to, to share in the Lord's Supper because he knows how forgetful we are. Not not that we forget where we put the keys, but that we forget how much he loves us. We forget that the price that he paid to be with us, his broken body. So he says, do this, right? Share in this meal, come to this table, because I want to remind you regularly of just how much I love you. That's the bread. Then he takes the cup, right? Verse 20, uh, he takes the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, uh, which is poured out for you. And that word covenant, we don't use it much these days. It's really another word for like a formalized relationship, maybe a contract, uh, a bit like a marriage perhaps. 
Uh, So Jesus uh, says that his blood, somehow, his blood being poured out on the cross, is going to bring about a new relationship between God and his people. And actually, uh, if you were like, you know, when you're on the internet and you're reading through a page and you, and you get to kind of a spot and there's a hyperlink on it, you click on it and it opens up a whole other thing. Right? That, that's a bit what it's like reading the New Testament sometimes. You're reading through and you see the words New Covenant and you just wish it was hyperlinked. You're like, I click on it. Anyway, that's what we're going to do now. We're going to click on the hyperlink of New Covenant and go back uh, to Jeremiah chapter 31 uh, where God tells us what's new about this covenant. What's new about this relationship? Jeremiah 31, uh, from uh, in verse 31. Uh, the days are coming, God says, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. What's new about it? Verse 33. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So in this new covenant, there's really four main new things. First, uh, people will have new hearts. So spiritually speaking, God's law will be actually written on our hearts by the power of God's Spirit uh, so we can live in ways that please God. Uh, Secondly, there'll be a new uh, type of relationship with God, a a deep assurance that God is our God and we are his people. Uh, A new level of knowledge of God. Notice that no one will need to say, uh, know the Lord, because all of them, from the greatest to the least, will know God personally, know him intimately. Uh, And all that's possible because of this new forgiveness that God offers. God says he'll forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. And that raises a question, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It raises a question. How is it possible for a God who is truly just to simply forgive our wickedness? Our proud rebellion. I started talking about that, Genesis 3. I started talking about how we all rebel in our own lives, even with something as simple as food. We turn food into our God instead of worshipping God. How is it possible for a God who is truly just to forgive us of our sins? Well, it's only possible because of Luke 22, verse 20. Jesus' blood poured out on the cross to pay the penalty for our forgiveness. I said before that that marriage uh, is a bit like a covenant. Uh, So I've used this illustration before, uh, but hopefully it, it helps. Uh, Imagine for a moment uh, that I sin against Gabby, my wife. I rebel, I betray her, I'm unfaithful to her, I cheat on Gabby. Now we know in that moment, you've maybe been in in that moment where someone's cheated on you, you know that in that moment Gabby has a choice, doesn't she? She can either uh, judge me, which would involve making me pay the penalty for my sins, or she can offer me forgiveness, uh, which means that she will have to absorb the penalty for my sins into herself. That's how it works, right? She'll have to swallow her anger, her bitterness, her righteous judgment of me. That is the just penalty for my sins. We, we get that that's how it works in relationships. True forgiveness is not cheap, is it? There's a real cost. Someone must pay. And Jesus says in this passage that that's, that's what his death is. 
But rather than judging us, making us pay the penalty for our sins, God can forgive us because in Christ he absorbs the penalty for our sins into himself. Anger, judgment into himself. And so Christ pays the penalty for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the first thing this blood represents. Uh, But he also pays uh, the cost for our freedom from sin. I remember the context here. Way back in verse 1, if you've got the Bible open, uh, there's that reference there. It was the time when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. In verse 7, Luke says it again, just in case we missed it. It's the time when the Passover lamb had to come. It's the Passover. When Jesus talks about uh, his blood being poured out, his disciples would have thought about that first Passover lamb. They would have thought about all those Passover lambs since, and they perhaps would have started to realize that Jesus is saying that somehow he fulfills those. All those Passover lambs were just signposts pointing to him like the ultimate Passover lamb, the one who gives his life not just to free people from political slavery or economic slavery, but to free people from slavery to sin, spiritual slavery, a slavery to to things like food and money and work and sex. So through trusting in Christ's death on the cross, his bloodshed, we can know not just that the the penalty for our sins has been paid, we're forgiven, uh, but that the power of sins has been broken. We've been set free. Uh, But we know that our freedom uh, is limited. Yes, the power of sin's been broken, but we still struggle with the presence of sin. And so this meal, the Lord's Supper, is also a chance to long for Christ's love, for his return, for that moment when we'll be with him and there'll be no more sin. Have a look in verse 16. There's a couple of little hints of this. Verse 16, Jesus says, For I tell you, I will not eat this Passover again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. He's looking forward. In verse 18, he says, For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I won't sit and eat a meal like this with my disciples until I return, until God's kingdom, remember the Lord's Prayer, until God's kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom comes in its fullness. And when that happens, Jesus will enjoy an incredible banquet with his disciples. Not just a humble meal with some bread and juice, but an incredible banquet. Isaiah 25 Uh, says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a a feast of food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. So this is a picture of eternal life with God. It's this banquet that we all long for. It's this banquet that offers us true comfort. Not not because there's going to be lots of comfort food there, but because we'll be with Christ. But the one who Revelation 21 says will wipe away our every tear. That's true comfort. This banquet offers us true security. Not because we're in control of the menu. I call God up and say, actually, I don't like eating that kind of thing. No, no, it's not true security like that. It's because we're with Christ, the one who gave his life so we could hold us secure forever. That's true security. 
this banquet offers, offers true pleasure. Right? Not, not, because, not just because the food's so good, it will be good, but because we're with Christ, the source of every good thing. It offers us true status. Not because people are impressed with what we've cooked, but because we're with the one, seated with the one who has all power and glory and honour. That's true status. So let's enjoy food for what it is. It is a wonderful gift from God. Once again, I love eating it. Please, something else. But let, let's not put food where only Christ should be. That the Lord's Supper reminds us that the, those deep longings in our heart for security and pleasure and comfort and status, right? those kind of deep longings that are in all of our hearts can only be satisfied in knowing Christ as we come to him uh, to enjoy and remember and long for his love. Let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we thank you that your word is indeed a, a rich feast. We pray, Father, that you would feed us uh, in our spirits, that you would satisfy the deep hungers in our souls. Uh, we pray that uh, where we long for comfort and security and pleasure and control and um, status, uh, we pray, Father, that we would come to Christ, that we would trust in his body broken and his blood shed for us and find those deep longings of our hearts satisfied. Uh, in his name we pray. Amen.